great time in the back. If you are remaining in the room, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read a, a familiar story that you just heard from Matthew chapter 2. Um, as, you're, uh, as you're turning there, last week I, I told a story, and I tell it pretty much every uh, Christmas season because I think it's just such a wonderful story. Uh, it's a story about um, a rediscovered World War II broadcast that uh, was discovered in the office of the Baltimore Sun Papers and then re-aired on NPR, and I think they've been doing it um, for the past couple years on NPR. And the broadcast contained messages from soldiers who were fighting on the battlefront in World War II, and they recorded messages that they sent back to family and friends at home. Uh, one of those soldiers was uh, a soldier named Sergeant Cody Wolf. Uh, he was one of those soldiers that recorded a message and sent it back to his family. And he wanted a, to share a particular message with his uh, 17-month-old daughter, a little girl named Margaret Ann. Uh, sadly, we know uh, that his plane was shot down uh, just three weeks later. He was never able to see his family again. And so Margaret, who is now 71 years old, just happened to be listening to the broadcast when she heard her father's voice for the very first time. She said that all she'd had before to remember her father were pictures and mementos. They were like a silent movie, but now she was able to hear his voice. I love that story because what a miracle that would have been for Margaret Ann at 71 years old to hear her father's voice for the very first time. If you've been with us for the past couple weeks, this Advent season, we've been looking at the miracles that surround the Christmas story. And we started um, with Mary's conception when she was visited by the angel Gabriel, who told her, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, we followed that up with a look at Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. Uh, Elizabeth was barren, past the childbearing uh, years, and yet she conceived also and had a son, and the story of Zechariah not being able to speak and then regaining his speech a little bit later on. Last week, we looked at the shepherds and the angels, this heavenly announcement, good news that brings great joy coming to these lowly shepherds in the middle of the night via a chorus of angels. It wasn't announced to the top of the social ladder, the esteemed people of the culture, but at the very bottom of the ladder to the, the people others considered to be unclean and a little rough around the edges, these shepherds. And so now we come to Christmas Eve and we come to what really is the, the central miracle of the Christmas story, and that is the incarnation, God coming in the flesh. Uh, Wade mentioned C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis wrote another book, which is a little harder to read, um, called uh, Miracles. And in his book on miracles, he says that the incarnation is the miracle that tops all other miracles. He writes, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. So every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and the significance of the incarnation. It is the miracle that tops all other miracles. 
And so throughout this season, we've beheld these miracles and we've, we've asked ourselves the question, does God still perform miracles? Does he still work outside of the normal? Does he still work in the extraordinary? Can he do something miraculous and extraordinary in our lives? How does our story as human beings connect to this miraculous Christmas story? And so this morning we turn to Matthew chapter 2 and we read uh, verses uh, 1 to 12. You can follow along on the screens or in your copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, came from, uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him... Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Father, thank you that uh, the the incarnation really is the, the central miracle of the Christmas story. And so as we've prayed throughout this Advent season, Father, it's, it's very easy for us to, to grow accustomed, maybe even numb, to these stories that we've heard year in and year out. And it's so often easy for us to get lost in the shuffle of holiday plans and gift-giving and wrapping that we miss the wonder of the incarnation. We miss the, the truly miraculous nature of these events in time and space and in history. So, Father, we invite the Spirit in with us now to help fill us with wonder and awe anew and afresh at what you've done in history to save us, that you came, God in the flesh, to redeem us and to bring us back to you, to rescue us. May we fall at your feet and worship just as the wise men did in our story. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So again, this is a a familiar story that we've probably heard many times uh, before, but I hope that we can re-examine it this morning to apply our imaginations, to think once again about who these men were, 
uh, what was so miraculous about this story? And then lastly, uh, what was their response and how should we respond to the miracle of the incarnation? How can our response mimic that of the wise men in our story? And how can we avoid the wrong response to the arrival of King Jesus? Uh, in many ways, what I want us to do is take Matthew chapter 2 and break it up into two different weeks. Um, I want to look at Herod and, and get in the weeds about Herod next week. Um, but this week, I want us to focus on the wise men. So what that means, you've got to come back next week and hear the second part of this story. Um, but this week, I want us to really focus on these wise men and really question, uh, who were these men that came to visit Jesus and why is this story so miraculous. Well, Matthew, the gospel writer, introduces us to these magi, um, otherwise known as wise men. Um, we've heard the Christmas carols for so long that we often think that's the, the, the honest tradition, there, and there has been a lot of traditions that have referred to these men in different ways. Um, some have called them kings. Some have said they were from the Orient. Um, some of those details might be presuming a little bit, but they really are very mysterious characters in the story. Uh, tradition has them numbering three, um, but it could have been many more than that. It could have been numerous wise men that came to visit Jesus that morning. Um, most believe they were more likely astrologers or astronomers or philosophers that certainly came from the East but most likely they were Persians that came from the Eastern territory to visit Jesus. And if they were Persians, you can understand um, how disruptive their presence would have been when they arrived. Um, the Romans, the Roman world in which Jesus was born and grew up in, the Romans had recently subdued the Persians. Uh, but they'd had a history full of conflict with these Eastern peoples, and that conflict went for, for decades, hundreds of years, uh, all the way back to the Greeks. In fact, it had just really only been uh, recently that they had subdued the Persians. Just 50 years before that, they had captured a, a very famous Roman general, member of the first triumvirate, and executed him by pouring um, molten gold down his throat. So you can imagine how the Romans really felt about the Persians and probably how the Persians really felt about the Romans. And so obviously, when high-ranking and influential Persians show up in this little town of Jerusalem, it would cause quite a stir for everybody who knew about their arrival. What we learn is they're given some sort of special revelation to follow a star and to follow it to the king of the Jews. And so there's all sorts of politics that are happening in this story. We're going to unpack that more next week. There's political uh, ramifications that would spread all throughout the region. Of course, Herod is involved. He wants to inquire about this new king. And so there's all these political and social currents that are happening in this story that I want us to unpack more next week. But what I don't want us to miss is this, that the presence of these mysterious wise men showing up at Mary and Joseph's home was in and of itself an incredible miracle. 
because we learn not just about a special revelation, but we learn a little bit about how they got there as well. While in Persia or whatever eastern territory they came from, they saw a star and it was a star that moved that prompted them into action. It prompted them into travels and into movement as well. They followed this star to the region of Judea. They traveled a great distance in order to get there that probably did take weeks and months. And then in verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they beheld the star that they had seen. It rose, they went before it until it came to rest over where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. Now, this is miraculous. Why? Well, we know from science now that the earth is constantly in motion. The stars that are in the sky are far more stable and fixed than even the earth that we are on. When you think about a star, think about our sun, which is itself a star and our planet rotates around it. And we know about things like shooting stars, which are actually meteors that just come into our atmosphere. They burn up in our atmosphere, they flash, they streak across the sky, and then they're gone. But this star is different. This star is unique. It's like a cosmic GPS that these wise men are following. This is something entirely different. This is miraculous. Now, we've seen throughout that God is perfectly free to bend the workings of the natural world to accomplish his purposes. After all, he is the one who put the stars in the sky originally. He's the one who brought forth light and darkness at the creation of the world. He's perfectly free to suspend the normal operation of the sun and the moon. Just think back to the book of Exodus and the plagues and how God used the natural world to accomplish his purposes. And then think of Jesus years later, who stands up in the bow of a boat during a very scary storm and says, be calm, and the waters subsided, the storm disappeared, and the water was like glass because Jesus stood in the boat. God is perfectly free to control the natural forces according to his purposes. But it still leaves us with questions. Why why these men? Of all men, why these men? What makes them so special that they get this special revelation and they notice this star and they make this journey. Just as unlikely as the shepherds were, so were a bunch of Persian astrologers just showing up in the town of Jerusalem. They looked different. They acted different. They spoke different languages. They had bizarre customs. They probably had little to no exposure to Judaism whatsoever. If they were indeed Persian, they were a a, a Persian religion called Zoroastrianism that believed there were two cosmic forces of light and darkness that would constantly battle and perpetually struggle with one another. That was likely their religion. And so why them? Why, Why would they receive this special revelation? Well, at the end of the day, we really don't know. We don't know why these men at this particular moment But what we do know is that they heard news of a brand new king 
And they did everything they could to find everything out about him that was possible. They saw that star move in the sky and they had to find exactly where it would rest. And again, is the story that that Connie read so beautifully exemplifies. Imagine their surprise when it didn't lead them to a grand king who was sitting on some throne, but a teenage couple who were struggling with poverty. It didn't lead them to the halls of a great castle, but a makeshift home for a young couple. And knowing all that, that's what makes their response part of the miracle. Because even their response is miraculous. And that's what I want to look at lastly, their, their response to finding this baby Jesus. Now, I'm currently reading a, a book, uh, David Brooks's new book, um, which is called uh, How to Know a Person. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is how we can all experience the very same thing but often have very different responses and reactions to it, right? We're all sitting here in this room, but we all have different responses and reactions to what happens in this room. And part of the challenge of really knowing a person is knowing enough about them to sort of know how they're going to respond to different situations that are presented to them. Well, I think that's what Matthew's after in our passage because he's making a comparison here. In one case, we see how Herod responds to the news of a new king. And his response is he feels threatened. It's one of rejection. And eventually it's one of violence. But he compares that to the response of the wise men who who respond to Jesus with homage and with honor and with worship. We're going to talk more about this next week, but Herod the Great, he hears the words from the Magi about a a new king, a king of the Jews that was born, one that had a a better bloodline than he had, and he goes to his scribes, and his scribes are able to verify the location of this new king. Uh, If you know anything about Herod, um, the history does not paint him nicely. Uh, He was a, a ruthless ruler. Um, He would arrange uh, for the brutal murder of anybody who would threaten his throne, and that would include his own family. He arranged for the brutal murder of many of his family members because he wanted to hold on to the throne. So you can imagine his response when he hears that a rightful king has come and has arrived. And so he immediately puts into plan all sorts of motions and actions in order to have that threat taken out, to have that, that king that was born killed. And that plan, fortunately, is prevented from happening from another miracle that we'll talk about more later in Matthew 2. But what we learn is that Herod was willing to do anything in order to kill his rivals. And of course, we read later in Matthew chapter 2, that all the male children under the age of two in that entire region were killed because of Herod's feeling threatened. He felt threatened by this new king. Now that's instructive for us for this reason. I think many people, we probably don't go to the same extremes as Herod did, but many people today, when they honestly look at Jesus and who he was and who he claimed to be feel threatened by him. 
They feel threatened by his words. They feel threatened by his teaching. They feel threatened by his identity. And let me explain what I mean by that. Of course, we believe that Jesus is our Savior, one who came to bring about our salvation. That's what a Savior does. But what we often forget is that Jesus is also a king. In fact, he is the king that is above all other kings. And as king of kings, what that means is that he demands our homage, our honor, and our submission. And so make no mistake, whenever you think about Jesus, make no mistake, he does come to threaten the status quo. He does threaten our own right to rule our own lives. He does demand things like submission and obedience to his will. He does require us to give over our lives to him. And for many people, when they hear that, they feel very threatened and justifiably so. I like calling my own shots. I I like living according to my own desires and my own passions. I like to be the king of my own castle. And Jesus, if I accept him for who he truly is, he threatens all of those things. And that's what makes the response of these wise men so miraculous. They were rich. They were foreign. They expected a king on a throne, not a baby bouncing on the knee of his teenage mother. And yet, verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Just imagine that. They fell down on the ground and worshiped him. Then opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You see, the friends, they fell down in homage and in honor. They worshiped him in that moment. They offered him gifts that were normally given to kings on thrones. And I've always imagined what Mary and Joseph were thinking when these foreigners entered into their home, fell down and worshiped this baby and gave them the wealth of foreign nations. Imagine what they must have been thinking in that moment. But as bizarre as this scene is, and it is bizarre, they recognized him in that moment as a great king. God's spirit moved in them to recognize Jesus for who he truly was and is. Friends, that is the work of God's spirit then, and it's the work of God's spirit now to open our eyes to who Jesus is and then to lead us into worship of him. This story would become even more bizarre when you consider that the first time a crown would be placed on the head of Jesus, it would be a crown of thorns 30 years later. I think that's what the myrrh symbolizes. The myrrh, one of these gifts that was given to Jesus. And if you know that um, Christmas carol, We Three Three Kings, there's um, a lot more verses. I think this is true of most Christmas carols, Sean. You could tell me this. There's a lot more uh, choruses to these songs that we kind of leave out over history. And there's a lost chorus to to the carol, We Three Kings, that says this. 
Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. But then, of course, the chorus brings us to this. Glorious now, behold him arise. King and God and sacrifice. Heaven sings hallelujah, hallelujah, the earth replies. He is the king who was born to Mary and Joseph and laid in a manger. He is the king who would eventually wear a crown of thorns and would be crucified. He is a king who would rise from the dead three days later. And he is the king who is coming again. Friends, don't be mistaken. Jesus does threaten the status quo. Jesus is our savior. He's come to provide forgiveness of sins and new life. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is long-suffering, but he is also a king, a merciful king, but still a king. And what that means is our time belongs to him. Our will and our desires are to be subservient to his will and his desires. Our money is him. Our talents, our gifts, our energy, all of those things, all of them are his. See, I think many of us want the savior part, but we want to reject the king part. But make no mistake, Jesus is both. He has come to establish salvation, that thing that we most need but he has also come to establish his kingship. That is what the wise men, that is what the magi understood. He does demand all of you. But the truth and the miracle of the Christmas story is this, is that when we fall at his feet in worship, just as those wise men did, we find life, life that is eternal. Let's pray.